Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. This is why humility and, and pride are so difficult sometimes to distinguish. Because if, if you're beating yourself up, you can think, oh, I'm not proud. But then who are you thinking about the most? Have you considered that there are elements of your character that can positively or negatively influence the way you experience life and the way life is experienced by those around you? Do you consider yourself arrogant or humble in your approach to life? Dr. Corbett is continuing a series of messages that challenge us to look at the way we live and understand the role of virtue in our lives. Tonight, he continues in his series, By Virtue of Humility. When we talk about virtue, we are talking about what the ancients called moral excellence. It actually comes from the word virility, which means strength. It takes strength to be a person of virtue. We could look at the virtues that Peter lists here, and, and I want to remind you that the circumstances to him saying this is that he was concerned that many of these believers thought, hey, I've given my life to Jesus. That's done. And he says, no, it's not done. It's just begun. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to give my life for this thing called the gospel. I'm going to give my life to my saviour. I don't want it to be for nothing. I'm fearful that it will be. I don't want it to be. I want you to recognise that I'm laying down my life so that you can grow in Christ in a way that I'm not going to have much further opportunity to do so. And then within a matter of months of writing this, He's taken by Nero, that he orders, Nero, Nero orders him to be crucified and Peter says, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. And he's crucified upside down. And so Peter's concerned that for these people who thought Christianity was just a matter of praying a sinner's prayer and making sure that you had, had your ticket to heaven, he wants them to know that's not what it's about. In fact, the hallmarks of true conversion is that you become a person of virtue. You are growing, and the key word that we saw before, increasing in these moral qualities and increasing in your knowledge of Christ and his word. And really, if we look at each of the virtues that Peter lists here in 2 Peter, I'm going to sum them up into four categories. And, and each of these, I guess I want you to go, yep, that's, that's what I'm aiming for. How do I get there? And I want you to know how you get there. How you get there is very, very simple. You simply walk with Christ. And, and how do you do that? Jesus, today I want to walk with you. Today I want to walk with you. I want, you, I want to walk with you. It's not that I want you to walk with me. I want to walk with you. And Jesus comes with you into your school, into your business, into your daily life and you walk with him Jesus I want to talk with you I want to hear your voice I want your word to come to my remembrance I want to walk with you begin to pray that and as the apostle said you increase in knowledge and there will be certain things that God would have you know that will change the way you react to people it will change the way you see problems it will change the way you you see your life and by walking with Christ, you will develop these virtues. You will. And here is what I would consider to be a summary of the list of virtues that Peter has described. The first one is peace. Now, I need to explain this because I, I, I quite possibly created some confusion here. These things Peter says 
we aim for, we strive for, we are growing in knowledge so that we can experience them. And when it comes to peace, I know that there are a lot of people who would not say they enjoy a whole lot of peace. For them, there's a lot of pressure. For them, there's a lot of anxiety and maybe not anxiety, but at least anxiousness, a lot of it, a lot of worry. They, 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 ha- they end up having physical conditions that, that are the result of the inner turmoil that they're going through. So this is where I, I, I hope to ex- clarify and explain to you that the kind of peace we're talking about is something you know first. You begin to know something. And what, what is it you know? You know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is good. And can I tell you, in the midst of everything that's swirling around, even inside your head, if you know those two things, you have begun to add the virtue of peace to your life. Jesus Christ is Lord and he is good. Really, if you, if you get that, Jesus Christ is Lord and he is good. The Apostle Paul said in writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 16 to 18, verse 18 in particular, I pray that your hearts may be enlightened. And if you understand, the Bible uses the word heart in the way we use the word brain. And we misuse the word brain all the time. You ever had someone say, hey, can I just pick your brains for a minute? My response is not unless you're a qualified neurosurgeon and then you've got to have a really, really good reason. And they look at me like I'm an idiot and I go, if you want a piece of my mind, I can give it to you right now. And the reason I do that is because I want people, I'm trying to make a point that every first year philosophy student has to study and that's the difference between the mind and the brain. The brain is that physical organ. The mind is how you think. And the ancients called the mind, they called it the heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So when we, we are talking about having your heart enlightened, it's what you know. And peace begins by knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is good. That's where it begins. The second category of virtues is love. And we've seen that, that when, we, when we look at love... We, we live in a world now that has completely distorted this concept of love. Love is what I get out of the relationship. Love is what you, it's what you do that makes me feel happy. And as I said at the wedding yesterday, love is, is confused, I think, today with what do I get out of it? And Christ was the occasion for the first time in human history for the world to get a glimpse of what real, true Love actually is. Because it's not what I get, it's what I give. It's not what you can do for me, it's what I can do for you. It's not whether I feel like it, because we see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane so intensely under stress that he is sweating, the Bible says, drops of what? Blood. That's anguish. That's the capillaries open up because the head is pounding so hard. And yet despite all the emotional turmoil, because of love... As Tony shared over communion, Christ went to the cross. So, so love is not contingent on how you feel. I'm going to suggest to you, feelings are the result of love, not love. And today we're going to look at this third one, which is humility. So this is, as I've just mentioned, by virtue of humility. Here's a quote from John Dixon, who wrote a book on humility. But this is what he said. 
The most influential and inspiring people are often marked by humility. In fact, he goes on to demonstrate this comment that he makes in his book, Humilitas, which is Latin for humility. And he said that Jim Collins, who is a, a corporate researcher and his research team, I think he's at Stanford, they, they researched into what made great companies great and they revealed that there were two outstanding characteristics in every great company. And what, did he, what was the criteria for a great company? A great company was one that was not doing well. Someone has come in and now it outperforms the market in its sector. And one of the companies he looked at was Gillette. It, it, it was a struggling company and the new CEO came in and that company now outperforms the market, not even in its sector, the market generally, by a factor of eight times, so 800% better than the market generally. Uh, Coca-Cola, by the way, is about 1.7% better than the market, so that puts it in some perspective. So they found that every leader, particularly these great companies, had their leaders had two outstanding characteristics. The first of these was not surprising at all. Great company leaders firstly possessed what they described as steely determination, a commitment that was unwavering. So great leaders have great commitment and they never waver, steely determination to make their company great. But it was the second quality that the researchers were stunned to find that in every great company, it always had a great leader, and the great leader possessed the second quality, which they did not expect. The second quality they found in every great company leader was an attitude of humility. They were stunned by this. And I guess it's not surprising when you think Christ was and is the preeminent leader. And what are the outstanding characteristics of Jesus? You'd have to, you'd have to include in that list. Humility. Incredible. Who can think on the night he was betrayed, where the disciples were arguing among themselves? What were they arguing about? Who was the greatest? They didn't even notice that Jesus wasn't there anymore. Why wasn't he there anymore? Because he's taken his tunic off stripped it down to his waist, tied it around here and he's washing their feet and using it, using his garment to drop. That was the job for the lowest servant. You know what their feet would have looked like, let alone smelt like. Sandals, open roads, donkey poo, camel poo. Are you allowed to say that in church? Yeah. And that was Christ. And so the apostle, in urging humility, reminds the Philippian believers of our Saviour, where he says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And you know, that's verse 3. In verses 1 and 2, he's reminded the readers of Christ. So let me ask you this question. I'd like to see a show of hands, please. Are you humble? 
so you're not. My son put his hand up straight away, possibly as a sermon prop, I'm not sure, because if you put your hand up to that, what are you displaying? Pride. No, not your hand, pride. Thereby proving that you're not humble. So here's the conundrum about humility. You could think that if you tell people you're humble, it's a sure sign that you're not. But you know, the flip doesn't work. If you don't tell people you're humble, that you are humble. It doesn't work. Because you could be proud and not tell anyone. And I'm telling you, on behalf of everyone else, we'll figure it out. Figure it out really quick. One of the things that struck me about F.W. Borum was how annoyingly humble he was. When I saw that he was pastoring in a leafy suburb of Melbourne and in 1924 he was invited over to London to speak and by this stage he had sold millions of books and didn't tell anyone in his church, didn't tell anyone generally ever. He went to London. When they heard he was coming to London, the London City Mission expected to have a few hundred people come out to their annual convention. And when, when, when it was Borum, they thought, oh, maybe we might get a few more than a few hundred. And so they booked a, a, a thousand-seat hall. And then when some several thousand people inquired about Borum coming, they realised, I'm not sure if they said flip in 1924, but if they said flip, they would have said it now. Flip, I think we're going to need a bigger venue. So in 1924, they hired the Queen's Great Hall, which was a huge step for a small organisation like the London City Mission. And, and they expected they might be able to maybe get a few people in there, holds about 3,500. And on the day, 10,000 people turned up to hear him. Instead of preaching once, he had to preach twice. And on, on the second occasion, they still couldn't get everyone in. They squashed four and a bit thousand in and then they chuffed them all out and got another four and a bit thousand in and they still had a couple of thousand left over and so they put them into St John's Anglican Church just across the road and they had someone at the door of the Queen's Great Hall yell across the road to someone there who yelled to someone at the door who yelled to someone on the stage of St John's or the pulpit at St John's what Boreham was saying and then he went to Spurgeon's Tabernacle and preached to 18,000 people then he went to uh, East, East London Tabernacle and preached to thousands and thousands of people. Then he came back to Australia and he didn't tell anyone. And I find that very annoying. Because if that had been me, I'm telling you, I would have figured out, I would make it, I would even make it sound humble. I'd probably look down and go, oh, you know, there's just, there's a you know, few thousand people came out to hear me. Thousand, I said, I said thousand. Thousand came. <laughs> He didn't do that. And I'm thinking, and then when I, when I saw that his official biography was published as he ordered his biographer, do not publish this while I'm alive. And so two years after his death, he, he, the, the author was authorised to publish it because Borum felt and, and told the biographer, there are certain things in there you've got to take out. I don't want people to know that. And they were all highlights. And again, I find that so annoying because it convicts me. It's just not right. So let's get, get our head straight about what humility is. Humility, this quote is often, by the way, ascribed to C.S. Lewis. And as I saw on the C.S. Lewis Foundation, C.S. Lewis never said it. Rick Warren said it, though, 
in purpose-driven life and he said this humility is not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less this is why humility and and pride are so difficult sometimes to distinguish because if, if you're beating yourself up you can think oh, i'm not proud but then who are you thinking about the most you see why it's it, you know it, it, that's why the person who stands up here and does what i do and you could be you could be sitting there looking at me going oh he's so proud look at him lapping up the applause and people adoring him this is um um, spiritual vision not actual vision and you could be thinking that and think well that is so proud but actually it takes it takes sometimes you, you've got to come up here despite how you feel you've got to come up here despite things like that so just don't be too quick to judge people who look like they love the limelight I don't love the limelight but I want to serve Christ and this is how he's called me to do it so that's why I'm saying Pride and humility can be sometimes very, very difficult to, to discern between. How might we define humility? We might define it like this. And I want every young man to hear me now because I want in this church a generation, a generation of young men who can be raised up in this church, who can be humble and out of that humility, know how to treat a girl. Because in Australia right now, we have a catastrophe. Not a looming catastrophe. The catastrophe is happening. Where one in four women in Australia report that they have been physically hit and abused by a man in Australia. The catastrophe is, not will, it is. And I want the young men of this church to know what real character looks like. And it starts with humility. So let me tell you a story to illustrate this. Taking a leaf out of my hero's book, F.W. Borum. The man sitting at the back of the bus. Let me tell you this story. Three young men hopped on a bus in Detroit in the 1930s and tried to pick a fight with a lone man sitting at the back of the vehicle. If you know nothing about the United States, just let me give you a little bit of background here. Black people were not allowed to sit on any other seat in a public bus but the back seat. And there was a famous case of this in the 1960s around the time of Martin Luther King Jr. with that lady. And I've, 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 If you're a relative of her, please forgive me. Rosa Parks, thank you who wouldn't sit in the back seat. And it caused a, a nationwide political scandal as to how she was treated. So this man didn't want to... Was, he was sitting in the back. These three boys insulted him and he didn't respond. They turned up the heat of their insults and he said nothing. Eventually... He, the stranger, stood up. He was bigger than they had estimated from his seated position. Much bigger. He reached into his pocket and handed them his business card and walked off the bus and then on his way. On his business card it said, Joe Lewis, boxer. 
They had just tried to pick a fight with the man who would be heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. He is, according to all experts, the number one boxer of all time, according to the International Boxing Organization. Second on that list, by the way, is Muhammad Ali. He is one of the few world champions in the world of boxing who was never defeated. Hmm. It is said that Joe Lewis could knock out a horse with one punch. Someone responded, I struggle to think how he got that reputation. But the point is simple. Here is a man of immense power and skill, capable of defending his honour with a single devastating blow, yet chooses to forego his status and hold his power for others. In this case, three very fortunate young men. And that is a great example of humility. Using, and in this case, holding your power. For the good and service of others. Do you realise we see a humble leader and, and we, we applaud them, we, we admire them. But you know, it wasn't, well, in human history terms, it wasn't that long ago before humility was seen as a weakness. In fact, before Jesus, the Romans wrote of, of, of the humble man as being a weak man. And then Jesus comes along. He extols humility. And Jesus said things like this, and we read it now and go, yes, of course, this makes perfect sense. But when Jesus said it, put it in a world where the Romans glorified might, strength and power and would as soon as kill someone as say hello to them. And Jesus says things like this. Whoever humbles himself like this child, remember he was playing with the children when he said it, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18 verse 4. In Luke 14 11, he said this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is radical stuff. Utterly radical. And it's at the core of Christ's teaching how he wants his followers to live and behave. Paul, in that epistle to the Philippians, we just read a verse out of before where he tells them not to be conceited but to be humble in their attitude. He goes on and he says this about Christ. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there's that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus says, not in a boastful way, but in a matter-of-fact way, when the, when the guards come, the soldiers come to take him, he says, I could call down 12 legions of angels right now. Having just answered their question, are you the Christ? And remember his two-word answer? I am. And remember what happened when he said, I am, in the Gospel of John? The moment he said, I am, it was like a wave of something hit them and they all fell backwards. To me, it's the pinnacle of humility apart from, or perhaps the penultimate example of Christ's humility apart from the cross. Let me bring this to a close. I want to inspire you to be humble. 
not to be self-effacing, not to be someone who puts yourself down, but someone who thinks more of others than of yourself. And I'm going to suggest to you that of all the virtues we've looked at so far, peace, beginning with what you know, despite your circumstances, despite how you feel, love, following the example of Christ to serve others. It's actually humility where it begins. It's actually humility that we all need. And, and as I was timing this, I wanted to time it right near Christmas because Christ coming from glory to becoming a zygote inside a woman happened before Christmas Day, right? And so here we are before Christmas Day and we're, we're pondering the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. Humility is indeed the preeminent virtue. Here's the question that I want us to consider now. How can we cultivate genuine humility? How can we do it? I don't know the answer. Because obviously you're going to look at me and go, what would you know about humility? I'm going to admit, not much. But this is what I've observed. And when I look at people like F.W. Boreham and others, and I'm currently watching a Netflix series on the Roosevelts and looking at Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the height of his power. He would get in his car, which he had made, where he could control it with his hands because he didn't have use of his legs. And he would drive through the, the backwoods of Georgia and, and see someone and pull over and, and say, excuse me. And they would recognise him. Excuse me, can, can I just have a chat with you? And he'd pull over to some farmer or someone on the side of the road and say, I just want to know, yes, Mr. President, I just want to know, how are you going? How's life for you at the moment? And they would pour out their heart and he had all the time in the world to listen to them. And then he would go, right, thanks for letting me know that. You know, um, one more thing. If there's any way you think I could improve as President of the United States, could you write to me and let me know? I'd really appreciate that. Have a great day. Drive off and find someone else and do it again. The height of his power. I think he won, the next pre- he won his second presidential term by something like a 68% majority. Unheard of. Just incredible. I'm not holding him up as, a, as a, a pinnacle of moral virtue, but I look at that and I go, he, he had that figured out. Because, you know, when he lost the use of his legs at the age of 36 with polio, lost it lost overnight, contracted infantile paralysis, polio. Suddenly, they said he went from being arrogant to being humble because he began to think, if this is what I'm going through, what have others been going through? Very interesting. So I don't know how we cultivate it. So what I'm going to do is, is give you examples of what it looks like and I think we know it when we see it. This is what I've noticed about people who are genuinely humble. It, it takes humility to serve others. Now I've seen, and you've seen too, people who serve others and they do it for show. They want people to go, look at me, I'm helping someone. Where are they? Where have they gone? And it's like, oh, give me a break. But then there are others like Jesus. You know when he said to the layman, hey, don't, don't tell anyone what I've done. I remember hearing as a kid someone tell me, oh, yeah, he said that because he knew that, that, that he would go and tell everyone. I actually think Jesus genuinely was doing something nice for someone, not for show. 
It takes humility to serve others. It takes humility to acknowledge weaknesses and to ask for help. To ask for help. That takes humility. It takes humility to genuinely promote others. And this is a big one. It takes humility to be teachable and to learn. And in this week's e-news, I point out that I think we're in a, a time, a generation, where this generation confuses information for education. And the thing that makes information education is when it's, you, you receive that information through, an, through interaction with, if you'll excuse the language, a human being, a real live person. And we are at risk of having the most information-drenched generation in human history that is quite possibly the most foolish generation in human history. It takes humility to be saved. Why? Because you have to do all of those things we just said. You have to acknowledge, I'm lost. This is why we need the gospel to be pronounced clearly so that people get it, that they need a saviour, that they are sinners. And if someone doesn't even acknowledge that they're a sinner, I'll be right if I die, you are arrogant and you will pay a perilously eternal price for that. So it takes humility to say, I haven't got it figured out. I haven't got my act together. I need your help, God. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting By Virtue of Humility from our online store. For updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.